<laughs> we will uh, we will cut that out because the IVD <laughs> is also listening. It. Yes. <laughs> It's Friday, July 7th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance. Usually, this is the last episode before our summer break. We think. <laughs> We think, indeed, <laughs> yes. Your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Poly Veteran. And with me uh, today is Gordon Derek, contributing editor at Dutch News and Drenthe Theme Park Enthusiast. Uh, yes, uh, our last episode before our summer break, if everything, uh, <laughs> if there are no um, uh, pressing uh, reasons for us to uh, to bring you another episode, as you will hear later in the podcast, uh, there might be, Yeah, uh, there's a big chance of that happening, um, so that's that's a nice cliffhanger, I think. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Gordon, you are a Drenthe theme park enthusiast, what's, uh, what's that about? <laughs> This is about the joyous news that a French theme park has decided it wants to branch out into the Netherlands and they've chosen that well-known tourist hotspot of a Meppel in Drenthe as a location <laughs> for their latest site. Uh, it's the Puy de Fou theme park. Uh, are you familiar with this, Paul? Not at all. No, never I'm not either. I don't think anybody is. Uh, but uh, apparently it's uh, quite a big theme park in France. They've also... Um, uh, the, 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 they have another park in uh, in Spain, in Toledo. I think there might be one in Canada as well or planning one in Canada. Uh, there's one, yes, hmm. they're, they're opening one in Tennessee as um, and they do traveling shows in Britain and Shanghai but um, yeah and this is kind of some medieval era theme park uh, the people also dress up in costumes I have to say it all looks a bit to me like some Monty Python and the Holy Grail when you look at it <laughs> yeah, this is a slightly does. run down looking castle I wouldn't be at all surprised when you turn up that you see sort of people throwing cows from from battlements <laughs> at you through with, with trebuchets and uh, trying to wheel giant wooden rabbits into the doorways I think Lord Buckethead would also uh, have a nice uh, yeah, he place would be here. Right I think. At home. Yeah. So I, I I I looked some images of this of these theme parks and I thought Maple is the best place for this. So uh, <laughs> at first I had some questions, but now I think Maple is a very suitable place for it. Yeah. Um, They're Maple, very enthusiastic about it. Um, an alderman from Maple was a quote on the NOS saying that um, yeah, yeah it would be a 60 hectare park and it could really uh, put Maple on the map, which is uh, I'm not sure that's something you actually want to do, but. Uh, it's uh, yeah, an interesting development and perhaps somewhere to go for our summer holidays next year um, definitely not no I <laughs> Maple is, is known to me only known as this place where uh, trains uh, used to strand because uh, it is really a bottleneck of the train services between the north of the country and the south and the west yeah. uh, every train has to pass from Maple so it's a really sensitive spot if something happens if a train stops there or there is a uh, uh, some sort of um, uh, yeah blackout or whatever then everyone who lives in the north of the country is stranded in maple and i always joke that 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 maple um siberia stars at maple uh, <laughs> and when you go there it feels like the end of the world and after that it's only uh, emptiness and uh, yeah and nothing yeah. else is happening yeah and do you um, know why so maple is particularly prone to uh trains uh dropping uh, yeah dropping out of the network around there 
Is it, uh, does it have something to do with Wouter Colmace? Uh, no, not Colmace, but you're in the right kind of ballpark with birds because uh, there's a lot of real problems with nesting storks around the railway lines. Oh, yeah. oh that's there. Huge oh, problems. Yeah, they've, yeah, got, they, they've got uh, 29 pairs of storks using overhead pole lines to make their nests. And of course, yeah. all of these, uh, and I, I, say, I would think, especially during this week, um, uh, during the storms, which uh, we're going to come on to in a minute. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, the, 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 they must have been very, very vulnerable to storks nesting falling on the lines and uh, causing short, uh, yeah, uh, causing the electrics to short. Yeah, and they are heavy, right? Yeah. They are hundreds They're of heavy. kilos. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, just uh, going to the uh, storm uh, of this week, I think. Um, Poli, Poli, Poli? Storm Poli, yeah. Poli. Yeah. Poli. Interesting name. Um, yeah, the Netherlands was uh, devastated by this uh, summer storm. It was apparently the heaviest summer storm ever. There are. It was a storm of the category very heavy. Yeah. Um, it was a four, force eleven academy. winds, so the winds returned right up to eleven. And academy really loves to uh, loves that designations right yeah. in the category. So uh, yeah, there is also a category for that. These types of storms usually happen uh, in the winter or in the uh, fall and. Uh, Having this storm in the summer is really unusual. It had never happened before, apparently. Um, and yeah, it was uh, quite devastating because um, uh, if you live in Amsterdam, then uh, yeah, you probably uh, couldn't go anywhere because of the knip, but also because of all the fallen trees yeah. um, uh, on all the canals. It was really uh, it, it Delft was yeah. We have some branches on the on the on the sidewalks and stuff like that on the road, but uh, 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 the real damage happened in Amsterdam, but also in Harlem. There was a uh, very interesting picture mm. of a street where all the trees had, were, were blown over and they were lying on top of the... Uh, in a very neat row, they yeah. were lying on top of the uh, terraced houses. Yeah, they're all uh, exactly the, the same street. angle, weren't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Stuck out yeah. Of the ground. It's incredible. Yeah. And it also the angle of the tree also um, uh, aligned with the angle of the, of the yeah, roof. Yeah, they'd fallen um, directly perpendicular to the houses. So it was all yeah. very neat and tidy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. even when Dutch trees uh, fall over, they do it in a nice, neat, straight line. Which is <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. Um, so yeah, pretty devastating. And I think the damages was uh, is estimated to be something between 50 million and 100 million euros, according to the um, insurance companies. They always uh, bring out, after a storm, they always bring out the estimations of the damages. Yeah. Um, so yeah, pretty devastating. But also one person died when a, when a tree uh, fell on her car, I believe. Yeah, so, and there's a second um, person was uh, died in, in Germany, just over the border. He was out walking his mm. dog as well. So there were two yeah, yeah, fatalities, yeah. very sadly. But actually, when you see how much devastation there was, um, I think it's quite remarkable that uh, we didn't have more serious injuries and, uh, and deaths um, because a lot of trees blew over. And of course, the trees are heavy yeah, at the moment because yeah, yeah. uh, they're full in full leaf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, and do you know why it was called Storm Poly, by the way? Uh, don't they have a system for for that? They do have uh, a system, but actually, uh, yeah, for, for naming storms, it tends to alternate with um, men's and women's names. But actually, this one's called Storm Poly because it was named. Uh, the Germans got there first, basically. The Germans got oh, their beach okay. towel on the, the naming system before everyone else. And apparently, <laughs> if, if another European country has already named a storm, the Dutch simply adopt it. So, mm, okay, so it was a German name. It's a German mm. name, yeah. 
Did a lot of bikes blow over the border? Well, no, the interesting thing was... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Hardladen was out on the bikes. That's how you noticed. That's how you knew that it was a really, uh, really serious yeah. storm as well. And it was also interesting that the NS announced an hour before the storm started that they were suspending all their services and everyone who was uh, yeah on their way to work because it was uh, it wasn't was right in the middle of rush hour yeah. were stranded on on uh, yeah on a random train station. I uh, spoke to someone who was on the way to Amsterdam and was just stranded in Schiphol and had to stay there all day because uh, I think the train services resumed uh, around 4 p.m. Mm. or something and uh, she just had to wait until <laughs> until there was a train. <laughs> Um, uh, 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 getting her back home. Yeah, the economy, they came in for a bit of criticism there, didn't they? That um, they didn't actually announce it as a code red storm until uh, just before 8 in the morning. And obviously yeah. everyone was already out on the roads by then and saying yeah. you know, perhaps they should have uh, um, put the storm alert out earlier. And I think companies, other companies like Bernrader said that they thought they could see that it was quite severe weather on the way um, as early as uh, Monday afternoon um, but uh, uh, I think Academy didn't call it a code orange until sort of early hours in the morning and then it was code red uh, just before 8 o'clock um, and of course it, yeah. hit, it was the worst case scenario for them because it hit during rush hour and it really hit uh, the Amsterdam commuter belt I mean here in The Hague we got a bit of a couple of hours of very heavy rain and some winds and some trees blew down but it was uh, the, the real serious damage was done a bit further north in the northern half yeah. of the country Well we just mentioned trains and the brings us neatly to the uh, op of the week mm. because uh, this time uh, it comes from a former social affairs minister and also former favorite of the podcast Wouter Kolmees yeah. um, after he left politics uh, two years ago I think already he became the managing director of the Dutch Railways and this week he gave an interview to the Volkskrant in which he basically complained about people's working hours <laughs> um, ever since the pandemic the NS apparently has been struggling with lower passenger numbers uh, shortages in staff as well and equipment which has forced the railway company to cut the number of services by 13%. And if you ever go by train, then you uh, probably have noticed that the trains are shorter, that uh, the trains are more crowded and uh, also dirtier, I have to say. Mm. Um, the overall number of people traveling by train is still 20% lower than before the pandemic, but peak hours remain more congested than ever, and that probably has everything to do with the shorter trains. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you would think peak so, hour. yeah. Um, Colme said that the rest of the day trains are virtually empty, which isn't true, I have to say, in my experience, though. Um, and uh, yeah, they are basically only displacing hot air. Um, and in an effort to uh, uh, spread passengers more evenly throughout the day, the NS uh, could introduce peak fares from 2026, he announced. Um, I can't really explain the peak hours, he told the newspaper. I'm no psychologist, but it seems as if passengers think, I'm going to the office, I want to make sure I'm at work at 8.30 p.m. Why would that be, do you think? <laughs> it's amazing you can be uh, head of the National Train Service for two years before you realize that people tend to uh, catch the train when they're going to work in the morning. And that uh, lots exactly. of people do this at the same time because almost everyone starts work at, or the vast majority of office workers start at 9 a.m. And he was, of course, the social affairs minister. Okay, he, he spent most of his time working on the pension law, which focuses on the time after yeah, the time when uh, he can indeed travel life. by train during the day. Indeed. Yeah. So, yeah, th that might be his excuse. I don't know. But, yeah, that comment really uh, sparked the op yeah. Um I have to say, in, in a way, I've never seen it before. <laughs> it was really <laughs> intense. People were really wondering if Colmes had ever heard of a working schedule. And uh, uh, apparently they were also wondering why he is apparently thinking people voluntarily decide to stand so early in overcrowded trains. Um, others said more expensive train tickets will only encourage people to use their cars uh, more 
which isn't uh, probably in line with uh, the government's efforts to reduce uh, uh, nitrogen emissions as well as carbon emissions. Mm. Um, and it's uh, just another example of NS providing a worse service for more money. Um, but it is in other countries, it's more, uh, it, it's already practice, right? Peak yeah. hour um, affairs, I, I think in the UK as well. Yeah. Um, I think Colmace as well was saying that this is, a, um, I think, a, a nuance I missed a bit when I uh, was uh, actually writing this story. But uh, Colmace is saying it's not just that he wants um, high affairs at peak times, because, of course, that, that, that already applies to an extent because things like disc- if you have a subscription discount, it doesn't apply during peak hours. But uh, what he was saying was that uh, you actually have um, differential fares on the same route um, so that, uh, for example, Purmerent to Amsterdam would be a peak fare, but Amsterdam to Purmerent at the same time wouldn't because guess what? Oh. Everyone's going into Amsterdam from Purmerent. No one's going in the opposite direction at the same time. I think so, if you're traveling to Permarent, you should be paid exa- money absolutely, to go there. Yeah, you should. <laughs> you should be given a, given a medal. But um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, so, yeah, so, so, so that, yeah, that kind of very um, tightly focused um, yeah, um, the, okay. the, the price differential. Apparently, they were already trying it on a couple of lines. I think around uh, Eindhoven to the Hague, I think is one where they where they're sort of experimenting with uh, an extra discount for traveling off peak or something. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the idea. But yeah, but it does come back to the idea. And Colmace sort of said that maybe this would stimulate um, managers to reschedule their meetings for ten o'clock and that kind of thing. But no, because yeah, you no. know, the reason people have meetings at this time is because that's when people can actually work. Because that's when their children are in school uh, and all yeah. that kind of thing. You, you'd have to ask people to actually reschedule their whole lives um, for the sake yeah. of the train timetable, and they're not going to do it. I don't think so as well. So it will only lead to more money for the NS probably. And uh, that's also something the NS doesn't dns doesn't mind i think yeah yeah well i have to say as ever i think uh, people the dns gets a rough ride when you compare when you travel by train in any other country you're, you're so glad to come back to dutch trains which are com- com- compared to a country like the uk fairly clean on time and you know the what you actually have free wi-fi that you don't have to pay extra for so yeah uh, i really don't want to know how bad train services trains are really are bad in, in other countries yeah can compare even if you go to germany the the the, the, the train service yeah. is so much worse i think people aren't yeah. quite aware of um okay it's not fantastic but it, it, it is a lot better than most other places This week, the coalition has fallen into total crisis mode after Rutte started a revolt against his own cabinet. King Willem-Alexander formally apologized for the Dutch role in slavery. Phones will be banned from schools while Zeeland gets its own specialized police force to combat drug trafficking. The Netherlands is sending back looted artworks to Indonesia and Sri Lanka. And we have an estimated hour-long segment on cricket news, so stay tuned. Yeah, momentous cricket news. Cabinet has held a number of crisis meetings with senior ministers last week, culminating in a live stream of a closed door last night. Mm. A lot of people were happy with that, including me. You always know things are getting serious when there are close-up pictures of a giant heavy wooden door, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that was the case last night. Um, The issue at hand is a new policy on asylum seekers. Prime Minister Mark Rutte is under pressure from his VVD party to reduce the number of immigrants coming to the Netherlands, which was expected to increase this year to 70,000 people. Uh, Stricter immigration rules, however, are opposed by Sigrid Kaars, D66, uh, and the ChristenUnie. Talks in the cabinet have been underway for months now, with weekly meetings between Rutte and the other three deputy prime ministers. But it has come to a heating point 
point this week after Rutter came to the table with new stricter demands. According to the NOS, the four coalition parties have agreed on introducing a dual status system which separates refugees into two categories. The A category is uh, refugees fleeing for personal reasons such as their political beliefs or sexual orientation and uh, the B category are uh, war refugees. Uh, That category is given temporary rights and they will be sent back when their country is deemed safe enough to return. Um, VVD is also proposing to limit the family reunifications of that second category with a maximum of 200 people a month and a waiting time of two years. Those are the real strict uh, demands Rutte brought to the table. But this quota is vividly opposed by D66 and ChristenUnie. Um, But Dutch media have reported that Rutte is prepared to let the cabinet fall if his demand isn't met. Um, Over the past month, the VVD party uh, has also dropped similar hints that they are prepared to step out of the coalition if they fail to reach an agreement. And last night, senior ministers discussed the issue well into the night with parliamentary journalists flogging outside the main door of Rutte's ministry. The group came out at around 2 a.m. without an agreement, uh, but they appeared optimistic. And the discussion will continue today on Friday after the weekly Council of Ministers meeting. Yeah, so Richard's saying quite clearly or dropping extremely strong hints that he's prepared to walk out of the cabinet. I mean, is this a bluff? Is this uh, high brinkmanship? Why is he taking such a risk here? Yeah, because Rutte is under a lot of pressure from a lot of sides. Uh, Rutte has repeatedly promised his own VVD party members who are unhappy about the high immigration numbers in a series of party conferences to finally do something against immigration. At the same time, he has to avoid a repetition of last summer when hundreds of immigrants were forced to sleep outside the asylum seeker reception center in Apel due to overcrowding. A law proposal drawn up by Immigration Minister Erik van den Beur, aimed at opening more asylum seeker centers and spreading them across the country, has struggled to reach agreement in Parliament. Especially the VVD is opposing the bill because it gives the government powers to force local governments to open asylum seeker centers. Rutte was even summoned half a year ago to the VVD faction in the Tweede Kamer to give an explanation, but the VVD MPs reluctantly agreed with the bill on the condition that Rutte would do something against the immigration numbers. In the past months, Rutte has traveled across Europe to build a coalition of government leaders to force the EU to come up with stricter immigration rules. And VVD faction leader Sophie Hermans surprised everyone a couple of months ago when uh, she said in parliament her patience is running out and that it was the last time she was asking Rutte nicely to come up with a package. The deadline Rutte was given uh, was just before the Tweede Kamer went on summer recess, which started last night. So he already passed the deadline. But uh, yeah, I think if an agreement is reached uh, today, everyone will be happy. But um, yeah, he just... Is under a lot of pressure, and um, yeah, is it bluff? I think so. To be honest, that's my that's my my belief. Mm. Uh, he will not be willing to 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 let his cabinet fall, but he had to do something to yeah, give a bit of leverage and give give a bit of um, pressure on uh, on 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 the decision. Yeah, and it seems like this uh, this sort of uh, asylum uh, crisis storm kind of blew up out of nowhere almost on Thursday. Yeah. I mean, there's no real hint of it before, but suddenly uh, the stories started popping up in the media everywhere saying that there'd been uh, a real 
um, sort of breakdown of communications uh, in on uh, on on Wednesday when the, the cabinet went in for closed door meetings. No one was really paying attention to it at the time. All of a sudden, Thursday morning, the stories started appearing in the media saying that the cabinet was on the brink of cracking and that the Christian Uni had um, felt that Ritter had crossed a line that he uh, and that they, 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 they and, and, and that uh, that they weren't prepared to compromise and Ritter was ready to walk out. So, I mean, given all that, this has suddenly just uh, emerged as a, a as a crisis in the space of about twenty. 24 hours. Uh, yeah, is Rutter really prepared to walk away and let his uh, let the cabinet fall and potentially, you know, end his um, uh, own long term as prime minister on a crisis? Yeah, I think this is this is the the, the nice thing about so many crises at once is that sometimes you can uh, overlook uh, one. <laughs> yeah, but it is. Uh, it, we we've seen a, a, a number of small fires relating to immigration in the past year, I think. And uh, yeah, this is just uh, as you say, it is. It has uh, accumulated to this crisis uh, in in the past week, or actually in the past day, or two days. Um, it has escalated into this this real uh, cabinet crisis in the past yeah. Uh, week. Um, yeah, is he really prepared to do that? Uh, the NRC did an analysis on uh, what the four coalition parties uh, possibly think about new elections if the cabinet falls. And in their analysis, they write that the VVD party is uh, the least, the most optimistic about a good uh, result uh, in a possible new election. But just looking at the polls, uh, if you look at the poll of polls uh, of Tom Lauer's, uh, the Peilingwijzer, mm. you see that the VVD is currently polled at 25 seats, which which is only half a seat higher than the number two, the Boerburgerbeweging. What makes the yeah? I hope they have a, a strategy to 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 deal with the Boerburgerbeweging. But if we if if the last election has shown anything. The Boerburgerbeweging has a, a, a potential to just surpass the VVD in seat numbers. And if yeah. that happens, that means that Mark Rutte will automatically, um, yeah, uh, 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 will no longer be a prime minister because yeah. the BBB then has the initiative of, of, uh, of uh, forming a government. And also Caroline van der Plas has repeatedly said that she only will step into a coalition with the VVD if Mark Rutte is not the new prime minister. So mm. in any way... Baby Baby Bay is necessary for a new coalition after the new elections, uh, it, it, uh, how it stands now. And in any scenario, it means that Mark Rutte cannot be the prime minister. So, yeah, is he really prepared to do this? Yeah, uh, as a historian, my impression is no. Be, yeah, I mean, he's a historian and he's surely he's conscious of the fact that he will go down in history as the prime minister who pulled the plug on his own cabinet. He yeah. seems uh, completely mad. I mean, even Vladimir Putin didn't lead a mutiny <laughs> against himself, right? Which is what Ritter, if you believe the stories, uh, is on the brink of doing. So, yeah, I find it very hard to believe, very hard to understand exactly what's going on. I do feel like this is, there's been a certain amount of uh, feeding stories to the media to kind of yeah. pu push this uh, sense of crisis so that um, the other parties feel compelled to broker some kind of compromise because clearly they say you and Deza Zestig and I find the fact that Deza Zestig have been completely silent in the last week quite interesting um, yeah. the say you and Deza Zestig have said that they're not prepared to compromise on these key 
immigration issues. And at the same time, uh, the Feifei Day, with Sophie Hermans, uh, said in Parliament and also recently at the Feifei Day's um, uh, recent party conference that uh, her patience is running out. So Rutte clearly feels under pressure internally from his own party, but also from uh, from his own coalition partners. And pe- perhaps pushing it to the brink is his uh, last throw of the dice. But I do think it's a huge gamble for him because he, you know, I think the other parties, particularly the CAU, um, uh, feel that uh, really they've been put in a very tight position. Of course, the CAU ultimately are a party of conscience. They don't, they don't care that much about being in government. They feel their principles are being yeah. compromised. They they will they, they will leave. Uh, you know, then they, they will decide they don't want to be in government anymore. Um, and certainly, I think if the if Rutte pulled the plug on the coalition, I can't see the CAU going back into a coalition with him. So he's going to have to find another coalition partner. Again, Daisy and Zestuk are not looking for, uh, are not enthusiastic about an election because it's going to be a catastrophe for them. And uh, but generally, you find in uh, historically that the party that prompts the election, the party that withdraws from government, also gets punished at the election that follows. That happened to Geert Wilders in 2012, right, where he withdrew from the coalition and uh, he was reduced from 25 seats to something like nine. So I yeah. think the real danger for Grutte is that if he walks out of the coalition now, the voters will yeah, will, 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 um, uh, uh, yeah, will give a very harsh verdict on that. Uh, the Feifei Day will no longer be the largest party. And then yeah, the initiative shifts to uh, the Bilberger Beweging, and I don't think Rutte will want that to happen. I think uh, you know that that, that uh, gives you a new, uh, potentially uh, slightly volatile party, not quite on the scale of FFA Day, maybe, but uh, but a slightly unpredictable party, who then uh, that then takes the initiative. Yeah, and some some people have suggested that um, uh, the VVD can easily manage the Baby Bay in a new uh, in a new campaign because uh, if the cabinet falls on immigration, that will probably be the main issue in the campaign, and the Baby Bay is weak on that regard because people don't know what the Baby Bay stands for. Uh, but that can easily be solved by Caroline van der Plas because she just sits in a talk show and she explains what her position is on immigration. Yeah. So I don't think that is a, that that would be a a a solid strategy for the VVD to to step in to a new campaign. And also, Deza Sester really doesn't want new uh, elections because they are very uh, standing very low in the polls, but yeah. also because uh, they uh, managed to, 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 to negotiate a coalition deal that uh, is really in their favor uh, on a number of key issues. And they probably feel that if the cabinet falls now, um, these key issues will not be addressed in a, in a new cabinet because uh, other parties are currently more popular that uh, that that don't feel the same thing and it is on, on stickstuff, on climate, on mm. on you name it. So that's also not in their interest to 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 let the cabinet fall. Uh, CDA as well. They are they were already decimated last general elections. They were even more decimated in the in the provincial elections of March. And yeah, what will happen to them? In in the, in the new election, they will probably win even even less votes uh, seats than that. So, um, I don't think it's in anyone's favor to have elections now, except the Christine who doesn't really care. Um, yeah, and they will always just get five or six seats. I mean that that will yeah. never change, no matter what happens. So no. yeah, it's not going to damage their standing in parliament. As I say, that they're just as happy being in opposition as being in government as well. So yeah. So in works. conclusion, I think my assessment of this is that it's just a very it 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 is it's just an example of a very uh, of political theater. And Mark Rutte mm. is trying to communicate to his uh, uh, voters base and to his party members that he is doing everything he can. To, to get a deal as best as possible but uh, he will probably have to compromise at some point and we'll explain it as uh, yeah it's not um, 
uh, it's not the good time to pull the plug on the cabinet. Uh, That's the thing, isn't it? He will be... eventually make a compromise and he'll say he's doing it for the good of the country. But at yeah. the same time, he'll also be able to turn around to his own voter base and say, look, I talked tough on immigration. You know, we still have a hard line. And at the next election, again, because at every election he comes up with these policies, right, on restricting immigration further, which then he waters down in actual coalition agreements. Or they get challenged in court. Of course, I mean, the last thing yeah. he tried to do, what Eric van der Buch tried to do as asylum minister, was to limit um, uh, family associate, family reunification. Of course, the courts threw that out. Now, what's Ritter's new plan? Limit family reunification. You can see what's yeah. going to happen, can't you? So, yeah. a lot of uh, this is theatre, as you say, and uh, measures that aren't really practically um, realistic. Um, but nevertheless, uh, he feels obliged because the VVD voter base is very hostile to immigration um, to, uh, to, to, to keep pushing this rhetoric. And he's probably going to win some scores because he's he's uh, he's really putting puts. He's really putting the pressure on the other coalition partners as well. So yeah. he can explain it as, as a win. And I think he will then focus uh, uh, his attention to Europe where uh, he can uh, uh, yeah, manage to get even more uh, restrictions on immigration, I think. So um, that might be his uh, his uh, his ultimate game plan, I think. Plan, be the I think. Grace. Yeah, of course, you're right, because he's, he, he's um, uh, very um, involved in uh, broking this deal with Tunisia, right, on border yeah. controls. So he'll be able to sp- pre- pre- present that yeah, as a win as well. And of course, he's not he's not going to blow up the coalition when the, I mean, Ritter is aware, yeah, unlike journalists uh, like me who have very short attention spans, that there are lots of other issues that the cabinet has to deal with, like the night crisis and yeah. pulling the plug on the coalition now would mean potentially going to government with the BBB and having to start all over again on nitrogen yeah. which would be suicidal because you know there are court judgments hanging over the government's head and it's already done a lot of economic damage and it's only going to get worse so you heard it here first the cabinet is not uh, collapsing <laughs> this week it better not they, what, they better not collapse at three o'clock on Friday afternoon when we've got six <laughs> weeks till the next podcast I will actually go to the Binnenhof and stab Mark Rutter if that happens yeah you heard it here first the cabinet is not going to fall and if they do they we will be back with the special episode. I think. We will. We will, uh, we will yeah. come up with a special episode. Yes. yes. As was widely expected, King Willem Alexander formally apologised for the Netherlands' part in the slave trade during this year's Ketty Kotti commemorations. On this day that we remember the Dutch history of slavery, I ask forgiveness for this crime against humanity, he said. As your king and as a member of the government, I make this apology myself, and I feel the weight of the words in my heart and soul. The king said the horrific effects of slavery could still be felt today in people's experience of racism, and while not everyone agreed with his decision to apologise, the whole country needed to work to build a society in which everyone can participate and take part in the what he called a healing process. And he said, as the Second World War highlighted more recently, you cannot hide behind laws when your fellow human beings are reduced to animals and subjected to the whims of those in power. Uh, he gave a speech in the Oster Park in Amsterdam where the National Slavery Monument um, is located. Uh, how was it? Was also very rainy, I think, right? And it was, uh, no, it was, just, it was a bit of rain. Actually, I think there was just a little sort of a shower just as he was speaking. I think because somebody was a lackey was holding an umbrella over his head. Mm, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It seemed fitting that whatever yeah. I have to say. Um, and how was his speech received uh, on Saturday? Well, it certainly went down well amid the audience in the in the Osterpark. Uh, there were cheers even and a smattering of applause when he actually spoke the words, uh, I apologise. And of course, that builds on the apologies that Mark Rutter gave uh, in December, which um, yeah, at the time were a little controversial, but uh, also well received when he actually said it. Uh, Rabin Bandoy Singh, the National Coordinator Against Racism and Discrimination, said it was a historic and incredibly emotional moment. Uh, and I think the King got a lot of praise because he made it quite a personal speech and uh, talked about the 
shortcomings of the uh, officials and the stadtholders and the and, and, and the monarchs at the time of uh, slavery. Kilmar uh, Pisas, the Prime Minister of Curaçao, said he greatly appreciated the fact the king had recognised the sufferings of the past and asked for forgiveness. And the fact that he asked for forgiveness went further than a lot of people were expecting. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, he also just fact that he linked it to the Second World War, which I think was interesting because it reminded me of the speech he gave on May the fourth a couple of days, a couple of years ago, when he acknowledged the royal family had been too passive in response to the persecution of the Jews. So very much, uh, you know, showing humility and uh, uh, taking responsibility for uh, the failings of his uh, predecessors. Yeah, and there was some opeth uh, about uh, f- our favorite grumpy old man, Martin <laughs> van Rossum, right? Indeed, yes, yeah. He, Martin van Rossum, uh, was was not um, on board with this at all. Uh, he uh, he spoke out in his uh, podcast uh, once again about uh, the idea that apologizing for slavery, uh, which ended 150 years ago, was nonsense, and he said it was a cheap exercise exercise nobody called me about slavery in the 19th century yeah but it's not all about you boomer but he said apologies <laughs> have become a kind of weird political habit yeah uh, he fulminated uh, so yeah he wasn't impressed and a few other people also said you know, they, they, they didn't really see the point of apologizing for the slave trading past yeah and uh, some people expressed uh, their displeasure in a more direct way right yeah, unfortunately, there was a certain amount of uh, vandalism as well. Um, the day after the king gave his speech, uh, a monument that had been put up in Flissingen Harbour to commemorate the victims of slavery was uh, was attacked. Uh, white supremacist slogans were sprayed around the base, uh, or the, the place, uh, the spot where it was located, and it was plastered in stickers with Dutch flags and more slogans. Uh, the artist, uh, Zeus Hunderop, said it was scandalous and an act of racism. It's got no place here, he said. Uh, and although the sculpture was put up illegally, because the the local uh, town council said they felt it would be a, uh, an official monument would just be a gesture. The police said uh, they were still taking the matter seriously and the fact that it was uh, an illegal monument uh, wasn't wasn't important to them. They said it was just as bad as daubing a synagogue with swastikas. Mm. So they now are investigating uh, uh, the vandalism to this unofficial monument. Uh, and in Rotterdam as well, a sculpture on the Lloyd Pier outside the Shipping and Transport College was defaced with graffiti tags. Um, this is a bit more puzzling because some of the tags were identified uh, as um, the work of a local black graffiti artist known as Timer. Um, hmm. But there are other unknown tags as well. So was it him? Was it someone stealing his identity? Who knows? Yeah, there's uh, some questions about this, if, it, if it's just, just regular vandalism or not, but the timing seems very suspicious. And yeah. uh, the monument was also surrounded by wreaths. So yeah, it is... Uh, it should be very clear to anyone that uh, this was uh, this was a, a, a special monument for a spe- on a special day. But yeah, yeah and it's that, in Rotterdam Harbour, and it is a sculpture of people in chains. I don't think you could really avoid it, uh, ignore yeah. the fact or miss the fact that it was uh, connected with uh, slavery in Ketikoti. Um, there was some. Uh, yeah, uh, amusing an amusing incident surrounding a slavery monument. I cannot believe that I'm saying this, but it really was amusing in Eindhoven, yeah. right? So, uh, what was what was that about? Yeah, in Eindhoven, what happened was uh, that they, they just put uh, up a, a brand new monument to slavery, which was a leg iron and a chain on a plinth just behind the town hall. And they discovered on Saturday morning that the the, the sculpture had been wrenched from its plinth, and immediately everyone was scandalized and uh, yeah. said that this was a terrible you know act of um, uh, desecration of a, a, of a monument uh, on the weekend after slavery but then they actually went and looked at the camera footage and it turned out that somebody had just chained their bike to 
<laughs> the monument, which I thought was, yeah, was just a classic uh, Dutch thing. Somebody just be wanted wanted to go to the pub or something, needed a spot to a secure spot to chain their bike, and they spotted this sort of round a thing and assumed, thing, yes. yeah, yeah, they assumed that it was a, a bike parking uh, installation. <laughs> and of course, as soon as they parked their bike against it, the weight of the bike uh, pulled the, um, the the sculpture off the plinth. Um, yeah. So yeah, and then so and the that chain was, what, was destroyed by another chain. Chain was destroyed by another bike chain. Yeah, yes, yeah, in, yeah. in the Netherlands the bikes are still in chains yes but um yeah so thankfully i suppose we should say yeah. that uh, this wasn't the work of extremists and we could all have a little bit of a, 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 a laugh about it but, uh, but given the yeah. other incidents it wasn't yeah. it wouldn't be surprising if it was another yeah racist vandalism no uh, it was an understandable attempt. assumption i think uh, given yeah. the uh, given the t- when it happened and uh, all the other things that had gone on over the weekend but uh, no th- this was just some, was a slightly ignorant person who uh, yeah had, uh, who was looking for somewhere to park the bike yeah and we should probably also explain what ketikoti means uh we just revealed that it has something to do with chains uh but uh, yeah. can you explain it a little bit further yeah ketikoti literally means the chains are broken in uh, Sranan tongo which is a, a language of Suriname. Uh, it's been commemorated on July the 1st every day since 1863, which is the date that slavery was formally abolished in the Dutch uh, colony, and it's a public holiday there. Uh, a clause in the agreement to end slavery meant that um, some people remained enslaved for another 10 years, which is why it's uh, 150 years uh, since the actual end of slavery. Slave owners and planters were paid 300 guilders compensation for every slave that was freed in Suriname. Uh, only 200 guilders uh, if you uh, were a planter in the Netherlands Antilles. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure there was lots of creative accounting for people to register their um, Antillian plantations in Suriname. Yes, and uh, on... on uh, With the belasting deans giving, you know, sweetener deals as well and... Uh, Yes, I think maybe Wouter Kolmees can, uh, can yeah. uh, learn from this system. Yes, <laughs> different pricing, differentiating, yes. Exactly, yeah. Anyway, Ketikoti has been a public holiday in Suriname since um, uh, 1863, and there are calls to do the same in the Netherlands. The ceremony in the Oosterpark uh, has been uh, started in 2002 when the first monument to slavery in the Netherlands was erected there, and it has slowly spread to other cities. So Eindhoven, which you just mentioned, had its first official Ketikoti parade this year, and uh, Utrecht and Almere, they unveiled memorial as well this uh, on July the 1st which takes the total number of official memorials to slavery around the country to eight um, hmm. still quite a low number yeah. you would think yeah. Yeah. but you know it's a start uh, and because uh, yeah, because the king was apologising and because uh, it was uh, a landmark anniversary, uh, government ministers were dispatched all around the kingdom for this year's ceremonies. So Mark Rutte and Sigrid the finance minister, were in the Oosterpark. Uh, Wopke Hoekstra, the foreign affairs minister, was in Suriname. Uh, health minister Ernst Kuipers was in Curaçao. The housing minister, Hugo de Jonge, went to the island of Bonaire. And uh, asylum minister, Erik van der Burg, uh, flew out to Aruba. Hmm. So I think Bonaire got the short straw there. <laughs> yeah, uh, Suriname didn't get the short straw. Uh, definitely no, not. No. They got the very long straw. Yeah. yeah. Now some uh, short news. Uh, long-serving MP Renske Leite has left Parliament this week. The Socialist Party politician announced her departure unexpectedly on Sunday in a tweet. She sat in Parliament for almost 17 years, but said in a statement that it was time for her to leave the Hague bubble and get involved in democracy in other ways. 
Leiter played a crucial role in uncovering the child care benefit scandal, which led to the resignation of Mark Rutte's third cabinet in January 2021. And together with Pieter Omzicht and Denk MP Farid Azarkan, they became staunch reporters of the wronged families. Thousands of parents were wrongly accused of defrauding the child care allowance systems. They were ordered to pay back tens of thousands of euros without the right to appeal the decision. SP leader Lilia Marijnissen had nothing but praise for Leiter. She described her as a real voice for the people, always involved and accessible to all. BBB leader Caroline van der Plas said that she regards Leiter as a role model and her absence will be greatly lost. So real praise from across the political spectrum there then? Yes, everyone was, was praising her. She's a well-regarded uh, politician. I think uh, Renske Leiter herself, she wasn't very positive about the political culture in The Hague. She describes politics as toxic and slow. Mm. So uh, yeah, even though there was a lot of praise for her, she didn't have a lot of praise for politics in general. Yeah, and I think she stood out as really doing the work uh, that you don't see an awful lot in Dutch politics of really standing up for ordinary people and vulnerable people and regular families right politics and the Netherlands I think partly because you have this um, party list system where you don't have constituencies you don't have actual groups of voters uh, you rely on to get you back into parliament it tends to get a bit detached from uh, society sometimes and you do get this bubble effect where politicians are constantly talking to each other and you're sitting in committees examining reports but not actually um, being a bit out of touch with what's going on down on the ground and that certainly happened during the Tuslachen affair and it was Renske Leiten and Peter Omzicht who went actually, actually went out and started speaking to people who were affected by this and that was how the scandal was uncovered. Yeah, and she also uh, was always stepping up for the rights of the Tweede Kamer itself. She was uh, always asking questions uh, to ministers, always uh, demanding more information, more reports. Uh, and, and whenever it was delayed, she always made a point out of that because she said there is a right of information and uh, uh, the government uh, should apply that. And uh, if the Tweede Kamer asks for something, the, the government should do it. So yeah. uh, she also stood up for that. Uh, she did a lot of committee work also internally. So uh, yes, she was a well-praised politician and one of a kind indeed, yes, so uh, very hardworking, so she will be missed, I think, not only from members of her own party or her side of the political spectrum, but throughout. Yeah. And then the uh, education ministry will introduce a guideline that says that mobile phones should be banned from classrooms. Uh, this will start at January 1st next year. Phones in classes are detrimental to school results. Research finds with pupils not able to withstand the lure of their phones scoring an average of one to one and a half points lower in tests. For now, the new rule will apply to secondary schools only, but the ministry expects to make a decision about primary schools too in the next few weeks. Schools welcome the measures which is putting an end to a long political debate about the desirability of government intervention in school matters. Teachers are happy with the measures. 73% of them say they wanted a national ban on mobiles in classes, which they say is only a cause of an unnecessary distraction. If unsuccessful, the guidelines may be turned into law, the ministry said. And Zeeland has been assigned a port police force to combat drug smuggling via the province's ports. A team of 25 detectives, police officers and intelligence analysts will be monitoring the ports of Vlissingen, Bosler, Terneuze and Moerdijk, which isn't in Zeeland, but uh, yeah, it is nearby. Zeeland has long petitioned the government for a port police force of its own. Drug criminality is a growing problem in Zeeland ports, especially in Vlissingen. On Thursday, for example, 1,500 kilos of cocaine was intercepted. That's the biggest shipment in the province this year. 
and in total 4,500 kilos of cocaine was found among cargo in the Zeeland port this year. While local authorities are happy with the new team, they say at least double the number of officials is needed to combat drug crime effectively. And uh, they're definitely not the only ones who uh, suffer from uh, understaffs, I think. Yeah, so Zeeland's um, special drug busting squad. Yeah. I just hope they don't um, go around in cars with a big Z symbol on the side. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> Uh, no, uh, and, and, and uh, not wear unmarked green outfits, no. Uh, I think it, you, you, if you just follow the news, it was clear that Vlissingen was becoming an increasing um, port where drugs, cocaine, but other drugs as well, are imported to. I think the uh, the custom service is increasingly uh, putting an effort to intercept cocaine uh, traffics uh, in the ports of Rotterdam and also Antwerp. So yeah, drug criminals are finding new alternatives to, to smuggle drugs into the Netherlands. You also saw that with the fishers in Urk, for example. Yeah, there's a new drug route uh, via Denmark that they uncovered recently, right? Yeah, it was picked up by Urk fishers and then brought to Denmark. So yeah, this is just another development and you see that uh, yeah, if this is successful, then they will probably find other ways and then uh, they're going to have to um, put a police force in the harbor of Meppel or something, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or Hardevake, yeah, yeah. It's a kind of waterbed effect. Yeah, yeah, literally, yes. If you appreciate our efforts to keep you up to date uh, with what's going on in the the Hague bubble or the Flissinger waterbeds, <laughs> perhaps you'd like to consider becoming a sponsor of this podcast on Patreon because it's the support of our loyal and generous patrons that make this podcast possible and motivate us to keep staring at heavy wooden doors in the Binnerhof long into the night so you don't have to. All patrons get a shout-out on the podcast and access to all our exclusive bonus content, including the upcoming summer special. So get your donation in soon. And you also receive, of course, as ever, our heartfelt and sincere thanks for helping us to put in the time and effort that's needed to make these podcasts. This week we have uh, two new patrons to thank, uh, Zach Denfield and Bill Wirtz. Bill is a Luxemburger, which I think might be a first uh, among our, mm, our team of podcast patrons. Yeah, uh, he's spending the summer in Amsterdam. He says, uh, I'm probably the epitome of the irritating semi-expat in this city. We have a lot of them, so... Yeah, a huge number, and uh, the mayor is constantly <laughs> talking about them, so uh, at least you know you're not uh, going unnoticed, uh, Bill. Uh, and he also says it's a fun fact that when he mentions to Dutch people he's from Luxembourg, they don't really consider him as a foreigner, no. but he says because our languages are sort of similar and we share a history. So Yes, and uh, there are a lot of people who consider the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg still as one political entity. So, uh, But not Limburg. Not Limburg, no. We, we yeah, he's probably less of a foreigner than Limburgers. I think so too. Yes, yes. And uh, we hope to include Luxembourg into the Netherlands because then the prices at the pump stations uh, might be lowered. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's also yeah. A, an extra benefit of adding uh, Luxembourg to our country. Yes. And you can also share expertise on uh, tax avoidance. Yes. As well. <laughs> Um, Bill goes on to say, uh, you guys keep me up to date on Dutch politics in a way that doesn't assume too much knowledge in advance, but isn't too surface level either. And for my work, I write about agriculture. Oh, well, lo- enough to to write about in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so he's got his work cut out in the Netherlands, or plenty of it's fertile ground for research, I'm sure. He says, your reporting on the nitrogen debate is also very informative. So, Well, so, well a, a lot of outspoken farmers on social media use the Luxembourg flag in their yeah. tweets and in their bios. So uh, there is a link here. So... Uh, yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, there is definitely a sense of uh, communality there. I think so too. And we also have an update and uh, another question from uh, Eric Browning uh, from Canada. Eric was in touch a few weeks ago uh, pleading for help with the horror of trying to find a house to rent in Amersfoort and all the attendant paperwork. Uh, he now tells us that he's found a place. Oh, uh, and nice. So congratulations to Eric. Good to hear that. And, and what about his pets? Yeah, and he apparently he's found a place where he can keep his pets oh, and uh, secure parking as well. So. Ah, that's very nice. Yeah, so glad that, uh, to, to have played a small part in uh, setting that up for you, Eric. Uh, he's also got another question for us. Having arrived in the Netherlands recently, he says, uh, why do so many people smoke? I can't walk to work without seeing 20 people flicking their butts onto the sidewalk. And uh, he also notices that a lot of young people smoke and wonders why uh, a country that's generally seen as having a good record on public health, that there's an awful lot of smoking and a whole generation looking forward to uh, increased risk of lung cancer. We uh, we compensate our massive amount of smoking with just consuming a lot of dairy products, I think. And that's that's probably the key. Now, uh, when I uh, read your question, I immediately thought, uh, you're lucky that you haven't come here to the Netherlands five or ten years ago, because uh, then uh, the amount of smoking has been steadily uh, decreasing. But uh, yeah, I just looked it up. It's uh, smoking in the Netherlands is relatively high uh, compared to the rest of Europe. It's an average percentage uh, of the EU is also uh, the percentage of Dutch people smoking. Uh, but it has been declining. So uh, yeah, if you stay long enough, then uh, hopefully you will see the point uh, that uh, when nobody is smoking anymore. But uh, I wasn't aware that uh, we smoke so much compared to other countries. I recently went to Spain and I felt that everyone was smoking there. But uh, yeah, it's only a small percentage uh, higher than the Netherlands apparently so uh, I was uh, surprised by that to hear that yeah I really noticed it I have to say when I first moved here which is now nine years ago uh, that there was a surprise that there was so much smoking and I think it's just that the, the Netherlands has maybe started its anti-smoking campaign later than some other countries um, things like uh, I mean until quite recently you know, the, the smoking ban in uh, restaurants and bars uh, has it, uh, only came in I think a few years ago and there was an exemption for a while for if you ran your cafe as a one-man business yeah. you were still allowed to smoke as long as you didn't have any staff working for you because of the feeling was you weren't polluting your staff's lungs even though you were still polluting your customers but that's also been abolished so i think and things like having plain packaging for cigarettes and put them in a closed cabinet behind the yeah. counter now that's again a thing that's only been introduced in the last couple of years and i think it's been seen to have an effect in other countries where it was brought in earlier so i think uh, yeah the, the trend is definitely positive if you're not a smoker and if you are, of course, the tax just keeps going up on it. So at some point, you'll probably be put off for that reason. Yeah. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the Duck News podcast, uh, you can do it via Patreon. Log on to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Dutch News NL. The Netherlands is to return almost 500 artworks to Sri Lanka and Indonesia after a report recommended restoring tens of thousands of objects that were taken during the colonial era. It's the first time the Dutch government has acted on the advice of the Colonial Collections Commission, which said hundreds of thousands of items with a dubious provenance should be given back where possible. Junior Culture Minister Kunai Uslu described it as a historic moment. We are not just giving things back, we are starting a period in which we will work more intensely with Indonesia and Sri Lanka, she said. Art law specialist uh, Geert-Jan van den Berg said it was an important step, but a first step. And uh, what kind of artworks are we talking about here? So the items going back to Indonesia uh, include four stone statues from the former Javanese Hindu kingdom of uh, Singarasari. 
a Keris dagger from the Klungkung kingdom, and 132 objects of modern art from Bali, which are known as a Peter Maha collection. Mm. Now, the Dutch government says it's giving them back uh, unconditionally, so it's not uh, setting any terms on which they need to be displayed or kept or whatever, but the Indonesian government has already said it plans to put them on display at the National Museum of Indonesia. And a handover ceremony has already been planned for the Peter Maha collection at the National Museum of Ethnology in Leiden on Monday, July the 10th. Mm. And uh, how about Sri Lanka? Yeah, Sri Lanka's getting six objects, which include an ornate bronze cast gun known as the Cannon of Candy, which sounds like a game you play on your phone or something, Cannon <laughs> of Candy, doesn't it? But it's can, currently can on it. display at the Rijksmuseum, uh, as well as gold and silver ceremonial swords, a Singhalese knife, and two guns. And around half the 450,000 items in the Rijksmuseum are thought to have a connection with the Netherlands colonial past. Yeah, so... Uh, so a bit of paperwork to get through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was, to be honest, unaware that the Dutch had a colonial past in Sri Lanka, but uh, yeah, apparently yeah. we did, yes. And are there any other controversial items that are not being returned? They're still holding out on the Dubois collection at the Naturalis Museum in Leiden. This includes the human remains of the Java Man, which is considered a landmark piece of evidence in the study of evolution. Now, Eugene Dubois was a Dutch 19th century explorer. He pilfered around 40,000 fossils from Indonesia and he used forced labour on his digs mm. and some of the workers died while they were on location. Indonesia requested the return of the fossils in 2022, but Naturalis has rejected previous requests. They argue that items from prehistory don't count as patrimony. More recently, the Dutch government has uh, slightly uh, softened that uh, line. They said no requests have been declined, but some things take longer than others. And um, yeah, can we give a comparison to what other countries in Europe are doing with uh, looted colonial artworks? Yeah, this is definitely a trend among European colonial or former colonial powers. Uh, the French president Emmanuel Macron said in 2017 that he was uh, making the return of objects to Africa a priority. Belgium and Germany have also started to go through their collections uh, and uh, itemize items and return a number of artworks to their countries of origin. Uh, some of the restorations have themselves proved controversial. Germany returned 21 Benin bronzes to Nigeria last December, but then it turned out the government had already transferred them to the Royal Palace, which went against an agreement with Germany to put them in a new museum for West African art hmm. that the Germans were helping to pay for. But can you guess which heritage institution has been, uh, should we say, conspicuously less forthcoming about returning items taken from its former colonies? Mm, if I would make a guess, I think this museum is located in London, United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is indeed the British Museum. Yeah. Art law specialist uh, Gert-Jan van der Berg said the UK was dragging its feet on the restitution of colonial art. He said deaccessioning laws in the UK basically make anything that suggested a toothless tiger. I'm convinced the UK doesn't want to move ahead because it will have so many consequences regarding things like the Parthenon marbles and uh, yeah, a whole ton of stuff. It's become a meme on Twitter, hasn't it? So how the British Museum obtained its artefacts. My favourite one is the one that says, uh, never ask a woman her age, a man his salary, or the British Museum how it obtained the items in its possession. <laughs> and I love the fact that um, no context Brits, that Twitter account is blocked yeah. by the British Museum because they once had uh, a similar meme put on their Twitter account, yes. Cricket, nice. 
Cricket, yes. Finally. Momentous cricket news. Really historic stuff. Uh, the Dutch men's cricket team have qualified for the World Cup in India. Yes. With a dramatic win, and it pains me to say it, against Scotland. Yes. I was incredibly conflicted so as I was following this match on Thursday, and I've been very keenly following the exploits of the Dutch cricket team and the way they've come back in this tournament. But of course, the final match just had to be against Scotland. Scotland, as is traditional, managed to find a way to get knocked out on mathematical obscurities. <laughs> yeah, you said... Uh, uh, cricket isn't a sport it's uh, it's bookkeeping right it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bookkeeping counting. exercise yeah, yeah. Uh, how long yeah. did the match take uh, it was a one-day match so uh, yeah, reasonably short by cricket uh, standards uh, two sets of 50 overs which each take about three to four hours depending on how quickly you're bowling and it was a really dramatic uh, match which was swung this way and that over the course of the contest uh, Bas van der Leder was the player of the match he took five Scottish wickets before knocking a quite tremendous 123 and 92 balls and yeah the whole qualifying tournament's not been a disappointment um, the Dutch and the Scots both beat the West Indies Scotland fell up by knocking out Zimbabwe on Tuesday and uh, all of which meant that uh, Thursday's match was effectively a showdown for the second qualifying spot behind Sri Lanka. To be honest, all these countries that we are naming, it's almost the previous uh, segment. <laughs> it is. Much, yeah, yeah. I wonder if we'll be rest- returning cricket balls to Sri Lanka yeah. now. But um, yeah, to go to the match, the, the Dutch won the toss, um, so they got the choice of who batted first. They put Scotland into bat because they figured the wicket was going to speed up over the course of the day. They took the wicket of Michael Cross with the second ball and uh, yeah they had their opponents on the ropes at 64 for three after 15 overs but then the Scots steadied the ship uh, Brandon McMullen hit a century Richie Barrington got 64 and Thomas McIntosh uh, with uh, a late flurry of 38 off 28 balls brought the score up to a fairly respectable 277 so that was the target for the Dutch. They got on to, off to a flying start. Max O'Dowd and Vikramdit Singh cracked off 25 in the first three overs. But then things started to get tricky. Scotland tightened up their bowling. The run rate started to drop. O'Dowd and Singh went in the space of two overs. And by the 33rd over, with the score at 171 for five, the match was slipping away from them. And this is probably the point to say that the Dutch, um, going into the match, the Scots were slightly ahead on net run rate, which is like goal difference, but combined with three-dimensional chess and uh, the Dutch cabinet negotiations all rolled into one. Hmm. Uh, so an incredibly complicated mathematical calculation that you had to do. But the effect was the Dutch needed to get to their target in 44 overs, not 50, hmm. in order to overtake the Scots because they were going to be level on points. So they were really in a rush. And uh, yeah, it was time for Delayda to step up. He hit 50 off his first 55 deliveries, but then decided uh, it was time to start whacking the ball out of the park. So in the 41st and 42nd overs, he and Saqib Zulfika scored 42 runs off 12 balls, including five sixes, and that brought the deficit down to five with two overs to spare. Suddenly, the momentum swung right back to the Dutch. Delayda was run out just short of the winning line, the only thing he did wrong all afternoon, and that meant it was down to the hero against the West Indies, Logan van Beek, to come on, score the winning run, and secure the Netherlands' first World Cup appearance since 2011. Afterwards, Captain Scott Edwards said the Netherlands should put up a statue to Bastelada, which uh, presumably will not be outside Rotterdam Central Station. <laughs> or behind uh, Eindhoven City Hall. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Any questions? Yes. How are the Dutch men getting on in Wimbledon? <laughs> right. I, I wonder if you had any questions on the cricket. First. No, 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 no. Let's move on to a sport I understand. This also has to do with <laughs> balls. Uh, it can also take a long time depending on the weather, but um, is cricket played on grass? Cricket is played on grass. Okay, well, yeah. that's another yeah. similarity then. Wimbledon, what's, uh, how are the Dutch doing there? 
Um, it took a while for the Dutch players to get on court because uh, there was a lot of rain disruptions over the first uh, uh, two days. So uh, two of the Dutch players, Gijs Brouwer and Borti van der Zanschulp, were about the last players to play their first round matches. They played on Thursday, by which time Novak Djokovic was already in the third round. Anyway, Talon Gieskwa was first up. Uh, he was a 28th seed, but he was given a tricky draw against the Hungarian Martin Fuksovic who'd won the only previous encounter between the two players. By the time they went off a rain on Tuesday evening, Kriegsborg was a set and a breakdown, and things didn't improve on Wednesday as Fuksovic closed out the match in straight sets. And Kriegsborg said he admitted he was below par and disappointed to have gone out so early after being in very good form and winning a tournament in Rosmarlen hmm. recently. Yeah. Next up was Kais Brauer. He'd come through the qualifying competition and uh, his reward was a very tough tie against the 19th seed, Alexander Zverev of Germany. Brauer gave a fairly good account of himself. Uh, he had four break points but couldn't force the breakthrough and he went down 6-4, 7-6, 7-6. And that leaves uh, Botik van der Zanskulp as the sole survivor uh, in the second round. He was up against the informed Chinese player Zhang Zizhen. Van der Zanskulp was uh, decidedly not informed. In fact, he hadn't won a match since April, and he's mm. uh, changed his coach in the meantime. But he managed to find just enough to overcome his opponent in five sets, and now faces Alejandro Davidovich Fokina of Spain in round two on Friday. All right, so uh, good luck to him. And um, there are some success to report on two wheels. Yeah, the Tour de France has started, of course, and the men are rolling through the Pyrenees. But um, yeah, the Dutch are having a better time of it in uh, the women's tour of Italy, the Giro Donne, where Annemiek van Floten is closing in on a fourth uh, career victory hmm. in the tour race. Van Floten won her third stage in this year's event on Thursday and holds a 13-second lead over Juliette Labou of France. The riders are now going to Sardinia to contest the final two stages on Saturday and Sunday. The number two Dutch rider, Lorena Vibers, dropped out of the race on Wednesday to focus her efforts on the Women's Tour de France, which starts on July 23rd. But it's uh, looking good for Annemiek van Floten. That's uh, all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Gordon Derek, and we'll be back after the summer, hopefully. If the cabinet lasts that long. Yes. Stab him with what? I don't know. <laughs> a heel pointy. of a shoe or something, whatever's to hand. <laughs> His own cycle lock key, I don't know. <laughs>